Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. As a Montrealer, I vividly remember my first sports riot. And no, it wasn't the famed Stanley Cup riot of 1993. I was only 10 years old back then, so it's probably a good thing I wasn't there. This was in 2002, and it was just after the Montreal Alouettes football team won the Grey Cup in the CFL. I wasn't paying too close attention to the game because I've never really been that much of a football fan. But I remember being downtown in Montreal after the game ended, hearing that Montreal had won, and then calling up a friend to come join me just to check out the mood on St. Catherine Street in the middle of the city. Sure enough, we arrived downtown to a now familiar scene of broken glass, drunken fans running amok, and riot police everywhere. It was actually kind of scary, and not that long after we got there, we started to get aggressively pushed back by these riot police. And then there was the 2010 riot that I witnessed firsthand after the Montreal Canadiens sent Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins packing in the second round of the playoffs. I happened to be finishing my radio show at the McGill University radio station that night and biked downtown after the game to check out the scene. This time it was jovial fans posing for photos in front of smashed storefronts and I had to zigzag among pools of shattered glass on the streets to avoid getting a flat. See, this is the kind of funny thing about Habs riots. Fans have been known to riot whether the team wins or whether they lose. And usually it's been after victories, but this isn't always the case with hockey riots. Each is different and each points to interesting social tensions and dynamics beneath the riots. That's why we want to jump right in and look at the history of hockey riots in Canada on this episode. So welcome to Hockey Riot in Canada. Now, I'm going to come right out and say that I often support riots. Yep, it's a controversial position, but might as well state my bias. That's because whether it's a riot against police brutality or a riot against an anti-democratic trade deal, I'm pretty much always on the side of the people in the streets against the government, politicians, and their riot police henchmen. Now, that's not to say that all riots are righteous. I mean, it's pretty hard to compare the riots that happened in Ferguson, Missouri, after the police murder of Mike Brown, to those of a bunch of drunk hooligan sports fans. One crowd is angry because of the oppression they face, while the other crowd is angry because their team lost or won. 
But that's not to say that we can't learn a hell of a lot from sports riots and a lot of interesting political lessons. For example, one of my favorite riots in Canadian sports history is the Christie Pitts riots in Toronto in 1933. In a nutshell, in that time period, fascism was on the rise in Europe. Across the pond in Toronto, a baseball team made up of mostly Jewish and Italian immigrants was playing an afternoon playoff game at the park in Christie Pitts. During the game, a bunch of local fascist youth came into the stands and began unfurling a large swastika banner. Well, they picked the wrong immigrants to fuck with, as these immigrants had baseball bats. And as one could imagine and hope, these Jews and Italians drove those fascist scum out of the park and a riot ensued. And we're lucky that fascism never really took hold in North America because of actions like this. So that's one example from baseball, but today we're going to do some digging into the history of hockey riots in Canada. We're going to start with a famed Maurice Richard riot that happened in Montreal on March 17th, 1955. Yes, the anniversary of that riot just passed. And we'll end with the most recent hockey riot that happened in Vancouver in 2011, following the Canucks' tragic loss to the Boston Bruins in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Including those two riots we just mentioned, there have been at least eight hockey riots in Canada. They've happened in Montreal, Vancouver, and one in Edmonton. Today on this episode, we're first going to hear from Dr. Jenny Ellison, who's a curator with the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa and co-editor of the phenomenal new anthology, Hockey, Challenging Canada's Game. She's going to walk us through the Richard riot, what caused it, and its legacy. Later in the program, we'll hear from Franklin Lopez. Franklin is an independent journalist based in Montreal and founder of the kick-ass anarchist video collective Submedia. He was on the ground in Vancouver to document the 2011 riot, so he's going to tell us what happened from his vantage point. We'll be right back with all of that. La Salam. Sun riot in the Attica. You want my people? Bonfire in the Attica. Oh, you mean? Alright, just before we get into the nitty-gritty of this podcast, I wanted to go over some housekeeping things. First up, if you like Changing on the Fly, if you've been enjoying our previous episodes, please do support us. We have a Patreon page, it's patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Every little bit you give helps us so much. You can donate even as little as $1 a month. You barely have to think about it. You can get your name shouted out on the show. You can get a whole lot more. We've got some great little perks. But um, those, those contributions on Patreon do really help us keep this show going and keep things together. It helps to pay for our web space. It helps to promote the show. And it helps maybe more importantly, keeping the heat on in my cold Montreal apartment. So again, patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Another thing I wanted to mention is that we had a really amazing write-up of the podcast on CBC Arts. They wrote a phenomenal article. So go check out our Facebook page where you can read that. And while you're there, why don't you uh, give us a little like on Facebook. You can follow us facebook.com slash changing on the fly. We're also on Twitter at OnChanging and also on Instagram. And finally, we are a proud member of the Upford Network. You can find your new favorite podcast at UpfordNetwork.com. Okay, let's get into things. Yeah. 
All right, joining me on the line today is Dr. Jenny Ellison, who is the Curator of Sports and Leisure with the Canadian Museum of History. We are going to be talking about the prickly issue of hockey riots in Canada. So welcome to the program, Dr. Ellison. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? Great. Thank you for uh, coming on. So we're going to uh, jump back a little bit in history as historians, I imagine, like to do and talk about some of the riots that have shaken the streets of our country over the last decades. I wanted to go back to one in particular that I find fascinating. I know there's been quite a bit written about it. There's been a lot talked about it, but it's always worthwhile to go back and revisit this. And this is the Maurice Richard riot, March 17th, 1955. So can you take us back and maybe, you know, before getting into the actual riot, talk a little bit about the story leading up and what exactly caused this incident? Absolutely. So uh, in 1955, Clarence Campbell uh, uh, suspended Maurice Richard from the NHL right at the end of the season, right before um, uh, they were sort of poised to for a first place finish and to, to win the Stanley Cup. So the suspension capped several years of hostility between Richard and Clarence Campbell in the NHL. So Richard and other Francophone players felt that they were not treated equally in the league. Uh, their main complaint, like, about the actual play was about the refereeing. Uh, it seemed always like francophone players could get slashed and checked with impunity on the ice. Uh, but if Rashar went after someone, he was um, he was dealt with uh, quite severely. Um, and there was also the problem that we see today um, uh, with racism in the NHL, where French players were the subject of kind of race-based taunts uh, by uh, English-speaking players and coaches on the ice. So the the result often was violence on the ice, uh, but off the ice, there were a lot of um, interesting things happening as well. Uh, Richard was ghostwriting a column, or sorry, Richard had a column in the uh, uh, Montreal papers that was ghostwritten for him where he was uh, cr criticizing Campbell. He called him a dictator, which he had to apologize for. Um, uh, he was fined by the NHL for some of his comments, um, and a group of fans paid the fines for him. So there's a, there's a, there's a, Longer standing hostility here that is a, a we would call it a race based hostility between uh, French Canadians and English speaking players on the ice in the NHL that sort of leads up to the actual suspension that occurred uh, at a game with Boston in 1955 where uh, Richard gets struck on the head by um, Hal Laco from the Boston Bruins and then he retaliates in a really, you know, in a really big hit. Uh, and he's barely, barely escapes getting arrested by the Boston police. Um, but he can't escape, you know, Campbell, who um, who issues the suspension. So at the time in Montreal, the, the suspension was considered outrageous. You know, fans were very upset. Um, outside of Quebec, you know, many commentators thought that Campbell was just doing his job. Um, a few days later, amazingly, Clarence Campbell shows up for a game, uh, a, a, a Canadian's game at the Forum. Mm -hmm. And he's... He's, uh, people throw boots at him, they throw programs at him, eggs, and apparently a pickled pig's foot. I don't, so obviously planned that way in advance. Pickled, um, wow. It's like... A fan uh, got so close to him that he actually smashed tomatoes um, on Campbell's chest. And there's actually, there is some video of this. So, um, you know, it, it is a, it is quite a, an eruption. Um, 
uh, uh, in the stands. Um, so after a homemade smoke bomb goes off in the arena, um, they have to evacuate. So this results in 14,000 fans uh, pouring out into the street. Um, and they're, they're, they're chanting, long live Rashar. And it's getting very, um, you know, as we've become familiar with the scene of riots on the street, it's, you know, a big throng of men and they're getting uh, quite worked up on the street. Um, the protests last several hours. Um, as we've seen now with subsequent pro uh, uh, riots in Montreal, uh, there's, um, there's significant property damage, um, and, and the, the riot lasts uh, into the night. It was because of Richard that Montreal was turned inside out on March 17, 1955. League president Clarence Campbell had suspended Richard from the Stanley Cup series for striking an official and the Montreal fans were outraged. À l'extérieur, la manifestation prenait des proportions inusitées. La soupape allait bientôt sauter. Clarence Campbell reçut d'abord une volée de coups que les policiers de faction ne réussirent pas à parer pour lui. Um, so the next day, actually, Jean Drapeau, who's the mayor of Montreal at the time, um, actually does blame Clarence, uh, Clarence Campbell for the decision to the riot, for the riot. Um, but Richard appeared at a press conference and he, he encouraged, he asked fans, please, um, to calm down. And he says that he'll return the next season to help the Canadians win the cup, which he does. My dear friend, because I always try so hard to win and had my trouble at Boston, I was suspended. At playoff time, it hurts not to be in the game with the boys. So that no further harm will be done, I would like to ask everyone to get behind the team and help the boys to win from Rangers and Detroit. They, lo they lose the cup in 55, but then he comes back um, in 56 um, to win the Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canadiens, and he wins four more after that. Mm. So, I mean, what's so interesting to me about this riot is, as, as with all riots, there's always like an important story behind them. There's usually some kind of like socioeconomic conditions driving that rage that propulses people to, you know, as they did in this case, take to St. Catherine Street in downtown Montreal and smash windows. And now looking at the two central characters in the story, as you mentioned, Maurice Richard on one hand, who was a, a French Canadian, you know, Quebecois, but the Quebecois identity was not necessarily as developed at the time as it was like throughout the quiet revolution in the 1960s um, but a real icon to working class french canadian folks and on the other hand you of course had the league commissioner clarence campbell from english-speaking canada someone who people viewed as representing the kind of wasp minority in in Montreal that was dominant at the time, at least economically dominant. And so can you talk a little bit more about the socioeconomic uh, conditions, the, the social conditions in Quebec at the time and, and you know, what might have driven this conflict? Absolutely. Richard was, you know, by for many, the best of what French Canada could be. He was a gentleman, he was a star. Um, he had uh, risen above his circumstances to, you know, become a leader um, uh, among uh, French players in the NHL. Uh, and, and this, as you as you rightly mentioned, is, is predates the Quiet Revolution. And so many many sort of think about the, or call the Richard riots. You know, they characterize it as an event that, you know, helped to inspire a new nationalism in Quebec. Um, 
you know, if we look at, you know, historical data on the socioeconomic position of French Canadians in the province uh, prior to the 1950s, it's really clear that while Francophones were the majority of the population, economically, um, they were more marginalized, um, had less opportunities for education, um, you know, more likely to to be in blue collar jobs. And so this 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 divide is is, is really it's really tangible. It's it's not what is sometimes described today as a cultural divide. It really is a socioeconomic difference. And as you as you rightly say, you know, Campbell represents, you know, quite a different picture. It represents the Anglo uh, dominance in Canada and the United States, and 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 within the league, the, the Anglo power of the league um, in the NHL. Uh, Charles Foran, who wrote a, wrote a biography of Richard, says, um, you know, points out, as many scholars have, that, you know, Richard himself, like many athletes, was not interested in being, you know, super politically vocal. He wasn't necessarily comfortable with this kind of role as a political figure. Um, but certainly at the time and then since then, he's come to kind of symbolize and represent this, you know, transitional period where, um, these identity politics and the in these socioeconomic differences between French and English, you know, begin to, to come to the surface and, and begin begin to be politicized um, more than they had been in the previous decades. Mm-hmm. And I mean, another interesting thing to me, looking at this riot, is um, is people talked a lot about this sense of humiliation. So the humiliation that the great Maurice Richard, Rocket Richard, felt, you know, at the hands of, of Campbell being suspended. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, like, I mean, maybe those those class differences or maybe those ethnic differences and what might have motivated that sense of humiliation? Well, you know, I, I, I would say that in the in the, the research that I've read on this, I, I, I haven't seen this conceptualized, but when we think about the history of masculinity and we're talking about power relationships you know within his community richard is the masculine ideal uh not only as a hockey player but just in his appearance and his demeanor um he is a respected gentleman uh, as is campbell but of course campbell holds that power over him and 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 we can see those those power differences you know as ones in masculinity but also in in ethnic differences and I think that um, what you're describing in terms of humiliation is partly humiliation related to manliness and and, and having one's uh, power and authority as a man, as a leader, undermined by another man. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wanted to talk, talk a little bit about the legacy of this riot. I know it, it's always like a little bit hard to talk about legacies because they can be multifold, they can be complex. Um, but of course, like, you know, historians I know like to take the long view a lot of the time and so you know what if anything could we kind of describe as being um, maybe one or some of the legacies of the Rishad riot well I think uh, as I already mentioned I, I, I think for historians often you know situate this riot as the you know one of the precursor events to the to the quiet revolution so they they situate it within the Canadian story as something that helps us to see those politics lingering beneath the surface. And and for me, as a historian of sport, this is a great example because it shows us the ways in which sport is always political, even if that those politics aren't, you know, 
in the in the way we would configure it between parties or even even nations. But there there's there's a, a politics of masculinity and ethnicity that continue through in in the sport of hockey, and I think that's a huge part of the legacy of these events. I think within the history of you know rioting and fan culture in Canada. Um, in general, I would say, you know, every riot, re you know, reflects the, the the politics of the time. Every riot is is, is tied into, um, you know, the broader zeitgeist of what's happening. And 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 the the question of fan behavior is one that uh, Russell Field from University of Manitoba has studied, and his work on this topic has been really instructive in helping me think about it. Uh, Field, you know, Field talks about something he calls the preferred spectator and the ways in which. Um, the NHL um, in that um, so-called original six era is trying to expand its base um, by appealing to respectable middle-class consumers. And he uses the example of Con Smythe and the construction of Maple Leaf Gardens to help us understand this. And what he talks about is the ways in which um, hockey arenas begin to be constructed um, to try to control fan behavior and contain fan behavior. So if we go back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, sporting events can be really rough. Uh, fights broke out in the stands, uh, primarily male culture, primarily a drinking culture. Um, but Smythe is trying to, you know, monetize, as we would say today, um, the sport and, and, and expand his audience. And so uh, Field shows us how within the construction of Maple Leaf Gardens, we can understand this in terms of there being a strict division between uh, the low price tickets and the high price seats. Um, the construction of Maple Leaf Gardens by the Montreal architectural firm Ross and McDonald, uh, who also uh, were the architects for um, the Royal York Hotel in Toronto. The placement of Maple Leaf Gardens in downtown Toronto, down the street from what was then um, the Eaton department store. And so uh, what Field argues, and I think is, is, is really true, is that there's an attempt to contain fan behavior mm. um, in Maple Leaf Gardens, but that this, these efforts are are a little bit at odds with what actually happens in the sport of hockey, and mm. and I mean, in hockey itself is an aggressive game, and 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 part of the excitement for the spectator is the speed, not necessarily the fighting or the violence, but just that part of the fan experience is getting excited about the game, it's having a beer at the game, um, and yet we. You know, there's reasons that municipalities and 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 league owner league owners want to sort of contain that behavior, um, and and embedded within that is um, a politics of class, and that uh, middle class behavior is presumed to be respectable. It's presumed to be calm. It's presumed to be more family entertainment, and so what Con Smythe is trying to do is to contain the sort of rougher elements to different parts of the arena and essentially separate his audience in order to, to grow the league. So all of that is to say that I think um, this tension um, between fan behavior as, as um, an outlet for the fan and the needs of municipalities and hockey teams to kind of contain that behavior, I think there's this, this inherent tension. Mm. Um, and I think that we see that carry across time up to the present. 
Yeah. Well, let's explore that idea, that tension a little bit more, because like, you know, to zoom out, maybe if we look at riots more broadly, um, you know, I I would argue that there, well, and of course, there's lots of different kinds of riots, so we can't lump them all into one. I would definitely argue that there are some more righteous riots, like maybe the riots we saw in in Ferguson after... um, you know, the police killing of Michael Brown or, you know, riots that have happened like at the World Trade Center, uh, sorry, the um, World Trade Organization uh, Summit in in Seattle in 99. So riots that were very politically motivated, um, which I think it's it's hard to like compare a riot against police brutality to like a hockey riot um, in, in a lot of cases. Yet, the 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 outcome i think what people see in the headlines is often very much the same just like smashed windows boarded up windows chaos uh, images of riot police um and so you brought up that tension and i wanted to unpack that a little bit and maybe ask you like what if if we look you know more broadly than the richard riot and there's been of course like you know, even if we just Google hockey riots in Canada since the Richard riot, there's been at least seven other hockey riots that have happened in Canada, mostly in Montreal, but also Edmonton and Vancouver have also had their hockey riots. Um, what what are some of the like the conditions that have driven some of these other riots? Is it just is it is it alcohol fueled exuberance? Is it is it, you know, toxic masculinity? I want to kind of get at that a little bit more. Well, this is a topic that I, um, I myself have been trying to understand um, in my previous work uh, teaching uh, sport in Canada, and and I I generally framed it in in my teaching as um, as a combination of um, uh, alcohol. <laughs> young men big one yeah um and excitement about the game and so um and and excitement about the game is not to excuse the behavior but it is to to sort of recognize that we send fans into an arena uh to drink and to watch a very fast exciting game uh to a certain extent i think municipalities want um some exuberance you know they want that um, more like the red wave in Calgary or something, you know, they want to see the fans pouring out into the streets and to celebrate. Mm. Um, but it can go awry. It can go very badly awry as it did in Vancouver in 2011, when, um, they invited so many fans to watch the game in a, in an enclosed public space and it had only 70 security, mm. uh, which is obviously not sufficient. And so it's not to excuse the behavior, but it's, it's, it is to sort of recognize that, um, this is, this is, yes, it's about, uh, young men and, and and violence and a particular expression of fandom and yes it's about booze but it's also about um the cult the, the broader culture and 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 what what we want sport to be and 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 the fact that it's it's sometimes hard to control that behavior especially when you bring alcohol into the picture um and so you know the riots in 2011 um really stand out to me partly because of the response afterward. And I think that we saw that response really clearly through social media where the fans um, the next day, perhaps a different set of fans, you know, went went downtown and they started to help with the cleanup. And there was a lot of really evocative photographs on it. And um, and uh, um, the, the city had to put up hoarding. Um, they had to put a plywood up over to cover the windows mm. uh, of, of the broken windows of different buildings downtown. And then on that, 
on that uh, hoarding, the fans started to do graffiti and kind of in that graffiti debate what happened. Um, mm. And in the graffiti, um, an example of which I used in an exhibition that I did on hockey in, in 2017, you know, you see um, in the aftermath, actually, this really interesting debate between fans over whether or not this was simply madness or whether or not this actually said something about Vancouver and the game of hockey. Uh, and then this sadness as well from from fans who who um, were upset at the outbreak of violence. So um, I think, as you point out, there's a lot of nuance here um, in terms of thinking about, you know, rioting and what it means and, and what the... Um, impact is Mm -hmm. once again we've been speaking with uh, dr jenny ellison uh, who is the curator of sport and leisure for the canadian museum of history thank you so much for joining us on changing on the fly today thanks for having me it's been a long long time since i rushed a police line and i got myself beaten black and blue I was at a hockey game, there was no one there to blame So they beat me up and put me on the news Next day I'm in the press and my friends say I'm the best Who burned up all the cars and hidden bars In my head it don't feel true cause they beat me black and blue And I'm wondering what the hell is going on It'll be a long, long way down Since we knew what we were fighting for It'll be a long, long way Alright, so I'm here with Frank Lopez of Submedia, uh, independent, longtime radical media producer, at times riot pornographer, <laughs> if we can say that. Um, so Frank, uh, welcome to Changing on the Fly. Hey, thanks for having me in the show. So we're, of course, talking about history of hockey riots. And I wanted to talk with you specifically about uh, one that happened in Vancouver while you were living there and you were there to document. And this is, of course, the infamous uh, Stanley Cup riot it happened on June 15th, 2011. Um, but I want you to kind of take us back there and like walk us through it from your own vantage point. Um, and maybe just to like briefly set the stage. This is, of course, you know, Stanley Cup finals 2011 goes to game seven, uh, Vancouver Canucks versus the Boston Bruins. No icing for the first time in 39 years. The Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. And they pour on to celebrate with Tim Thomas, their heroic goaltender. Vancouver loses on home ice. They, so they lose the final to the Bruins. What happens next? Well, I think I, I, I actually have to give a bit, a bit of a backstory because um, I'm from Puerto Rico. And as you can imagine, there's no, no hockey in Puerto Rico. Um, oh, no? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I became a hockey fan. Uh, when I moved to Canada, right? Like when people talk about the game, there's only one game they could be talking about, right? right. And so I, I can't name like any any players or anything like that. But when I was in Vancouver, somebody did buy me tickets once and I actually got to see the Canucks play and it was a really awesome experience and I became a fan. And a lot of my anarchist friends kind of like brought me out of my like, that's a corporate thing that you're supporting to like, you know, this is something that, you know, anybody can can enjoy, right? Uh, it's a it's a it's a sports of the people uh, to a certain degree. And so I was finishing a tour and I was really exhausted. But I remember the 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 the, uh, the Stanley Cup finals was happening. And so I, I I think I was in Calgary, that was my last stop on my tour and I remember like 
when you know, I I was touring with a film I made. There was this, the the film was like an hour and something minutes, and I would during the film I would run to a pub to look at the game, and I was in this belief, you know, like they 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 were gonna lose that game. That I, I guess it was game six uh-huh. at that time, and I was just communicating with friends, and and they were like joking. It's like Frank, if you hurry up here, you you might get here to witness a riot. And when I arrived in Vancouver on the 14th, uh, you could already tell, like, this was going to happen. Even the day before. Even the day before, everybody knew this was going to happen. So anybody who, who didn't know uh, uh, that there was going to be a riot was not, didn't really have their ear to the street, right? Mm. And so um, I was invited to dinner uh, with some friends of mine. And this was on, on, a, on a falafel place on Main Street. Uh, and for people who know Vancouver, this particular part of Main Street is on a hill and overlooks uh, downtown core. And I remember telling my friends, because I brought my camera with me, it's like, look, if if I get any inkling that there's a riot happening, I'm getting on my bike and I'm, I'm going to cut the dinner short. And lo and behold, I'm just biting into, into, into my falafel sandwich. And I look at the TV screen at the, at the restaurant and I see a stream of smoke. Um, you know, like a live shot of this car on fire already. And I guess it must have been like 6 or something like that, 6 p.m. And I look behind me at the view of the city and I see the plume of smoke there in the distance. And, you know, because just to jump in, I mean, so they lost that game pretty badly. I think they lost like four nothing, like Mm -hmm. brutal to get like shut out in game seven on home ice. So the game was pretty much over before it was over right like mm-hmm. they, they went into third period down like so i imagine i like did the do you get the impression the riot had even started before the game was even over or it, it, it it's very possible like the the timing of it kind of escapes me and i said god it was like already almost eight years ago right mm-hmm. but uh the the story of the car that was set on fire it came out that it was a guy who was trying to get insurance money. So there was even <laughs> even somebody who was gonna who was trying to take advantage of the possibility of a riot to set his own vehicle on fire so he can collect insurance. Wow. And he got caught. He got okay. in the end. In the end, he got caught. But that was that was a signal fire in the end. Like this guy, you know, maybe it was gonna happen anyway. But he precipitated, you know, the events the events that happened. He didn't wait long enough. <laughs> no, he, I don't think he waited long enough. But I, I, you know, so just, just just to put a pause on that part of the story mm-hmm. and to set the stage, the city of Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken, had f- put a freeze on the open container, uh, and so people were free to drink outside, and they had these big, massive uh, video screens in the downtown core where people could go and drink and watch their team lose on the seventh game. So the city, I think, holds a great deal of responsibility for, for creating all the conditions uh, to do this. There was over 100,000 people there at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. And so when the riot kicked off, uh, the police estimates was like, you know, in the tens of thousands of people, maybe even uh, not actively participating, but just being there as spectators, as enjoying, you know, the revelry that was happening on the street. So uh, I put my bicycle helmet and I and I booked it down Main Street down downhill. I got there fairly fast. I locked my bike, and what I'm seeing on the street from that moment on is sort of the most chaotic scene that I've ever experienced in my life. Um, it was a hard-fought series and a, a wild night turned into a very dangerous situation in that city. And our Josh Elliott, Elliott has been tracking all of this. 
overnight nasty. Yeah, as we can see, I mean, it was a terrifying scene there in Vancouver. Angry fans obviously pouring out into the streets. Emotion heightened as four stabbings in its result were reported. The scene so chaotic and violent, ambulances actually couldn't get through to help those injured. You know, as an independent journalist, I, have, I still haven't been to a war zone, but this is as close to, to what I can imagine like some of that chaos would be because there was no rhyme or reason to it, you know. There was lots of fist fights. Like, I, I mean, that was almost like the, the, the big feature of the riot. A lot of people like fighting each other. Um, the big, the, the, the thing that you heard people say over and over again, which seems almost comical, but also like idiotic to a certain degree is fuck Boston. <laughs> I mean, you just like every five seconds, fuck Boston. So there was, there was a real anger at this loss. Like, so, mm. you know, one can say that there's other reasons for the riot to happen, but there was also like a big letdown for mm. the fans. And mm -hmm. so a lot of them were definitely like letting their rage, um, and, I can't imagine anybody wearing like a like a Boston Bruins jersey in downtown that night. You know, would have been smart to just get the hell out of there, right? Mm. Um, so I, I started to see all this fist fight. I see also like couples making out. Uh, I and I I, st I still didn't see any looting of stores at that particular moment. But I remember, I mean, this is still pretty early on. Uh, there was a multi-level parking deck. And you could see the flames from the vehicles just kind of like co coming out of the openings of the um, of the parking garage and sort of enveloping already mm -hmm. the parking garage. And I went in the, the parking garage and I mean, there was a, a number of like expensive like Hummers and expensive vehicles on fire. So one can imagine that those cars were not chosen at random, that there was like certainly like a, a class war element to that where people targeted like BMWs, for instance. I saw a bunch of those being burnt as well. Um, and then, oh, I, I should mention that uh, I mentioned my helmet earlier is that I kept my helmet on. Like I was actually going to tie my helmet. And then when I saw the scene, I was just like, I don't feel safe here. And I say this, uh, I point this out because I've have covered a lot of things that the police uh, and and the media would consider riots, which is usually po uh, political demonstrations, where corporate stores and police departments or police equipment are targeted um, by by people on the street, and uh, usually at these um, at these demonstrations, the the so-called violence, what the media and the police call violence, which is usually you know destruction of inanimate objects. Uh, is very directed and very targeted. Whereas in the in the Vancouver riots, the the the, the destruction was was very very chaotic. Uh, I saw mom and pop shops being destroyed, to really really expensive stores. So I mean, there's I think a really interesting class element to this, right? That um, you look at uh, I can't remember the name of the arena where the Canucks play in Vancouver. What do you remember it? What it's uh, called? Uh, maybe it's with the, maybe it was the Rogers uh, Arena. I Definitely don't. Rogers something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. I mean, these yeah. are like these big corporate shrines, and like already like you know going to a regular season game is like pretty inaccessible for most working class folks let alone going to a playoff game where usually the tickets are at least like five times more expensive. So you end up like having these situations where people with money are the ones inside watching these games. And like you're saying, it's it's the people who are like the diehard fans who who are broke, who are like out in the street drinking the beer they bought at the corner store and watching the game for free. 
and um and that sounds like it must have played into it so yeah can you talk a little bit that like where, where you'd see like the the class element playing into it well i mean people have to uh know that Vancouver in downtown Vancouver, where the game happens, is an extremely expensive area to live. Like only very wealthy people can actually afford to live in the area where the game happened. And so uh, one can assume that the majority of the people took the SkyTrain that goes all the way down to Surrey and traveled uh, via SkyTrain to to this location. Mm. And, and so, let's just mention Surrey, of course, is a fairly working class suburb of. Uh, of Vancouver, right? And it's and it's and it's not a white suburb either. It's mm-hmm. like that's that's another thing that uh, um, that I think that needs to be rectified is that a lot of the people who were on the streets were not white. A lot of the people were were Punjab. They were they were uh, Chinese. They were from all from all kinds of different uh, um, uh, racialized uh, groups as well, who you know who are also uh, uh, hockey fans, and um, and you could tell that they're hockey fans because everybody's wearing. The damn uh, Luongo uh, shirts uh, mm-hmm. that cost like a whole lot of money too, mm-hmm. and um, so I mean, a, a very surface level analysis um, for me was that uh, uh, not only did you give p- the people like you, the city of Vancouver, give people the ability to get really wasted and you know ha- put so many stakes on this on, on this final game. Uh, which you know, if they, lo- I mean, I think win or lose, there was going to be a riot. To to be completely honest, um, there could have been a riot because people were so excited of, of of the win itself. But also, you are advertising uh, all these uh, all these goods, all these commercial goods on on you know every commercial game uh, break of the game. Plus, you have like an ultra violent uh, a game that's also. Uh, that's also has like sort of like the certification of society at large saying that this is a, an okay thing, you know, for men to like beat each other in the ice. Um, and then you're having this game right next to all these stores that sell all the goods that they actually just so advertise on on this large screen. And so like, you know, shoe stores, clothing stores, like uh, uh, the Hudson Bay, the uh, company store was also smashed. Uh, London Drugs was like a big pharmacy that also sells a bunch of electronic goods was completely smashed, but you know the riot itself didn't didn't really spread throughout the city. Just kind of it kind of stayed in this in this like um, I don't know eight city block area. Mm-hmm. I remember in one particular uh, uh, point during the riot, um, there was a group of indigenous folks who I knew who are who are telling people in the riot go this way and they were saying go this way because there was actually a store with something very useful which is a, ca- a camping store with a lot of camping supplies <laughs> but they could not sway the crowd to to move i guess to move south just one block so that they could take advantage of this to actually get some some decent uh some decent camping gear so for the most part like i mean a lot of people ended up with a bunch of uh of uh of, of store display shoes you know like all the all the shoes, it's the single right right foot shoes that, that, that they could get. And I mean, I, I think I was telling you that people will yell, we need you to send to, to throw more left shoes, throw left shoes, because, you know, all these people without pairs of shoes. But there was also like a tuxedo store that got smashed, and I started seeing all these drunk people wearing tuxedos on the streets. Um, yeah, it's just it's uh, so many vivid images of that night. And, and in the end, like, the police... The police could not control this riot. This was way too big for them. There was not enough cops in the area to control the riot. So the police basically just sat back 
because I was wondering, like, this this has been going on for hours now. The police mm. just sat back and waited for people to tire out. And all they could do was try to contain it, try to, like, push it, try to make sure it didn't spread. But in, but in terms of, like, controlling it, it, it completely got out of, out of their control. And a number of their vehicles got also set on fire as well. And, mm. and though that was also a very jovial, like, a lot of people were very happy to see the police, uh, uh, you know, get some sort of payback. Mm. Well, actually, I mean, I want to come back to two other things. Vancouver had two, I would argue, somewhat or very sports-related riots that happened preceding this riot. So there was the 1994 riot in Vancouver, which was almost like a like the predecessor of this one, like really similar. Vancouver Canucks make it to the Stanley Cup final. That time it was against the New York Rangers. Uh, I guess the important difference that time is that the, the final game was actually being played in New York City, not in Vancouver. But Vancouver lost and, and fans rioted nonetheless. It's interesting to go back and watch that footage because you know, except for like the difference in like people's like outfits and hairdos and the vehicles, you see like the footage is so similar, right? Mm-hmm. Just like people drunk, people smashing up like Starbucks and stuff like that. Um, which is actually funny because I didn't think that there was like Starbucks back in 1994, but I guess you guys had it on the West Coast before we <laughs> had it out east. Um, so there was that riot, and then and then of course there was you know the Winter Olympics in Vancouver in 2010, and you talked a little about the the protests there, but that was like a very specific uh, politically orchestrated mobilization against the Olympics for all the destruction and displacement that the Olympic infrastructure was causing. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk a little. Bit like like do you feel that either of those riots kind of set the stage for this one and, and what might have been like any links we could draw out i mean i think that the the only link i can i can draw between uh the the um this the quote-unquote uh black what they call the uh the heart attack riot and of the of the olympics and then the uh the 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 riots uh, the hockey riots the next year is that you know in 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 this one like anarchists were involved there was there was definitely like anarchists in the streets you know taking part in the mayhem and and the revelry and, and all that stuff um I, I don't know how successful we were at promoting this idea that these uh, these large sporting events like the Olympics are are sort of destructive to the city but we were we were because when I say we like we were all part of like you know organizing these protests in one way or, or another we were protesting some, something that was as um, popular as Santa Claus you know we were we were protesting something that you know most people think it's it's a good thing and I think in ye- in in the years you know after we have seen that there's been more pushback from cities um, against the Olympics yeah, but, Calgary actually just voted to not have the 2026 Olympics which yeah. is interesting yeah yeah, and I think other cities, other other cities have as well, which is which is most not the norm. It was usually the norm that cities want this, and cities are fighting to 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 get these games. So I think like, and we were definitely not the first people to sort of like protest the Olympics, right? Like there was uh, there were even like a small contingent in Atlanta where I used to live was protesting the Olympics, and then Athens and Greece was one of the more significant ones. Um, but I all, all I can all I can say is that. I, I don't know if I don't know if I can really draw like a, a like a strong connection between those things. I think it will be neat to see if if, they, if there actually was. But when I was in the streets uh, during the during the riots in 2011, 
I I didn't know I did not know anybody you know that, that I mean I think I think that was a, an interesting sort of feature for me for somebody who, who lived you know fairly close to the downtown core all these people were not from there all these people were from from the from the suburbs mm-hmm. last question I wanted to ask is what do you think people should kind of like keep in mind like what are some important things to keep in mind when we're kind of like evaluating these events like like these kinds of riots and I'll just say like you know I think for people who who I mean there's going to be people who will immediately dismiss it and there's people who are going to say you know like we understand riots that happen at protests maybe even riots that happen against police brutality um, but sports riots that that's a whole other thing and so you know what what would you say to people um, yeah who are looking at this and trying to tease out important political lessons I think the, the the first thing is not is not to jump not to jump to conclusions and to and to throw all the people who are taking part in the riot into one into one basket and say like these are all a bunch of you know who cares about these drunk uh, hockey rioters right I think that uh, to to a certain degree uh, maybe these riots uh, serves as pressure valves you know I mean there is definitely like a huge discontent. And uh, and a huge amount of alienation in like our modern society, and 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 sometimes these things might give people like an excuse to sort of like to to, to experience something different, you know. And, and you know, obviously, it's it's not a perfect thing, you know. It's it's it, and and a lot of people don't want to see like small businesses get destroyed and whatnot. But I but I do think that people have to have to really be aware of the class component of as you have mentioned of the people who are, who are taking part in these riots and also you know before starting to blame just drunk hockey rioters just sort of look at the complicity of the whole apparatus that that that, that moves the, the big sort of hockey machine you know and the type of things that they are promoting you know they're, they're promoting again a violent game they're promoting a bunch of sexist shit on on on, on the commercials they're promoting booze they're promoting alcohol um, and they're promoting consumerism and so I think that uh, before uh, basically um, just labeling all these people as hooligans, like people should really look at what at the conditions that are that are making these things happen. Definitely, we've been speaking with Frank Lopez again from Submedia, uh, who is there covering these riots uh, in Vancouver in 2011. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Awesome, thank you, Aaron. All right, so again, I really hope you enjoyed those interviews on the history of hockey riots in Canada. Our guests today were Dr. Jenny Ellison of the Museum of Canadian History and Franklin Lopez of Submedia. You can check out Dr. Ellison's work at jennyellison.com and Frank's work at sub.media. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Once again, I just want to remind you all that I'm very humbled to be taking part in an amazing roundtable on racism and hockey happening on March 30th in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University. We're going to link to all the details on our website, including where to buy tickets. So head on over to changingonthefly.ca right now. And hey, while you're there, you can also check out back episodes of the show. Before we go, I got to thank our Patreon supporters, Anne, Aiden, Jeff, Nick A, Jeremy, Andrew, Nick T, Ellen, Sam, Grill, Dasha, and our newest patron, Shauna. Music on this episode is by Rancid, Delhi Sultanate, the United Steelworkers of Montreal, 
and our theme music is by Chizimba. And on a bit more of a somber note, I do want to send my condolences out to everyone grieving the horrible massacre that happened at the mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. It is eerily similar to our own mosque massacre that happened here in Quebec in 2017. So I think for a lot of us, we know the emotions all too well. And as we've said on this show before, we have to destroy fascism. We have to destroy racism before it destroys all of us. So keep loving one another, keep protecting one another, and keep making racists afraid again. We'll be back soon. Thank you for listening. I'm Julian McKenzie, co-host of the Scrum Podcast, a sports show I'm doing with my podcasting partner in crime, Tristan Damore, on the UpFord Network. Every week, we analyze something different from the Canadian sports media landscape. Lack of diversity, getting a job in the field, coverage of different sports, and answering some of the harder questions. Through a combination of back-and-forth discussion and high-profile guest interviews, we're aiming to figure out exactly what's up in the world of sports. Find us wherever podcasts are sold. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Message in a Bottle, Morse Code, Telegram, Singing Telegram, Target, Walgreens, Bird's Nest, Dad's Shed, uh, and a crowded convention center bathroom. Historians often situate this riot as one of the precursor events to the Quiet Revolution. So they, they situate it within the Canadian story as something that helps us to see those politics lingering beneath the surface. And and for me, as a historian of sport, this is a great example because it shows us the ways in which sport is always political, even if that those politics aren't in the way we would configure it between parties or even even nations. But there there's there's a, a politics of masculinity and ethnicity that continue through in in the sport of hockey. And I think that's a huge part of the legacy of these events. I think within the history of you know rioting and fan culture in Canada um, in general, I would say, you know, every riot reflects the, the politics of the time. Every riot is, is, is tied into the broader zeitgeist of what's happening. Maybe these riots uh, serves as pressure valves, you know. There is definitely, like, a huge discontent and, uh, and a huge amount of alienation in, like, our modern society. And sometimes these things might give people like an excuse to experience something different. Obviously, it's, it's not a perfect thing, you know, it's, it's, it, and, and a lot of people don't want to see, like, small businesses get destroyed. But I do think that people have to really be aware of the class component of the people who are, who are taking part in, in these riots. And also, before starting to blame just drunk hockey rioters, just sort of look at the complicity of the whole apparatus that, 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 that moves the, the big sort of hockey machine, you know, and the type of things that they're promoting, you know. They're, they're promoting, again, a violent game. They're promoting a bunch of sexist shit on the commercials. I think that uh, before just labeling all these people as hooligans, like people should really look at the conditions that are, that are making these things happen.